0: Hi everybody, I'm Matt Berg. I'm James Kennedy and this is the Secrets of Story Podcast. Hey everybody. that was our theme music. Once again, I'm Matt and this is Secret Story Podcast And guess what? We have a returning guest who is returning for the fourth time. I believe this is your fourth time. Is that true, Jonathan Auxier?
1: Yeah, I think this is my fourth time. I'm excited to be back.
0: On the one hand, it feels like, you know, we've only done, what, 29 episodes and you've been here for four of those episodes. So it seems like you've been here pretty often, but we've done those 29 episodes over the course of six years. So in fact, you haven't been here very often. You've been here less than once a year, but they've just been spread over a lot of years. But I hear that not all podcasts put out so lackadaisically. I hear there are other podcasts that put out every week. As a matter of fact, I know of one. Guess what, everybody? Oh, my everybody?
2: God. He can't stop. You can't stop pitching himself. This podcast.
0: Okay, yeah. This I said last time that we would have a big announcement in the next episode. Here is that next episode. Here is that big announcement. Here we go. I have, I have launched a sister podcast to this one. This podcast will continue unabated, which is to say as abated as it always is. But we will go ahead and have a sister podcast, which so far has been weekly. We have put out three episodes. I have started a podcast with my brother called Marvel Reread Club, where we reread every Marvel Universe comic book starting in December 1961, and we do one month per episode. So, James, I understand that you gave up after 10 minutes because you hate comic books, but Jonathan, I believe that's not true of you.
1: I love your new podcast. First of all, I, I I crave the Matt Bird content. So this podcast, Secrets of Stories, comes out way too infrequently for my tastes. And so I like I like hearing your voice a little more regularly. I also grew up, my dad is a serious comics reader. And so he he and I grew up reading sort of the comics of his youth. So I think you and I originally, when we met, we bonded a little bit because we both had a, a surprisingly large amount of background in the Silver Age, even though that's not what most kids our age were reading when, if they right. were comics readers. So it's been a great podcast. So I totally am enjoying it. I emailed my father and I was like, hey, we should start moving through these books together. And also, you know, one of the things I love, it's, it's one thing just to kind of talk about like, oh, you know, someone looks weird in this panel and what's with that bad line of dialogue. But in a very Matt Bird fashion, I think you and your brother, Steve, who's a comics professional, you bring a lot of context that I certainly didn't have as a kid about sort of the, the politics going on of what was inside uh, amongst the creatives and some of those battles and some of the issues of censorship and where they're borrowing from other traditions and where the innovation really is. And that sort of analysis, it really kind of reframes the entire story of kind of the house of ideas and this huge sort of renaissance that happened in the early 60s with all of these superheroes we now love. Uh, so I'm totally digging it. I, I can't wait for the next episode. I'm, I checked out a whole bunch of old Silver Age comics to read to my kids so I can be a little more current on the individual issues you guys
0: are reading and stuff too. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. That is so wonderful to hear. It's great to know we've got at least one listener out there. I would say that currently, of the people on this call, 66.7% are listening to the Marvel Reread Club podcast. That's a pretty good percentage. I'm so glad you're doing it. We'll see if we can keep up a weekly schedule. We've put out three episodes. We've got a new one coming out on Wednesday, and we'll see when this episode posts, so we'll see how many episodes we have out then. In this next week, I have to edit an episode of Marvel Reread Club, even though Steve is doing editing some of the episodes. I have to edit the next episode. I have to edit this podcast. And I have to finish my book, which is due. It was was due in mid-June. So I've decided that July 2nd is the new mid-June. So I'm going to try to get it turned in tomorrow. Uh, We are recording this on July 1st. So what have you been up to, James? Um, Let's introduce our guest. Jonathan Auxier is the author of the Peter Nimble books. He is the author of The Night Gardener. He is the author of Sweep, uh, which I read to my daughter and she absolutely loved. He is the author of the fabled stables books. You've just had the second one of those come out, I believe. So
1: yeah, I have a new (laughs) series. of chapter books called the fabled stables. Uh, Second one just came out uh, like a month ago. They're a great illustrated series for younger readers, readers of all ages, sort of in the kind of pattern or or hitting that corridor of like the Princess in black books. Um, I like to think of them as like novel length picture books and they were super fun to write. But as I'm writing those short things, I'm always thinking about long, big stories and listening to you guys, (laughs) Vicker, about story structure. So I, uh, I kind of hounded you a couple weeks ago because I, I, there was a topic that I felt like you guys hadn't covered that I was starting to have some ideas about. And I was like, well, you should do an episode on this. And so that's why I'm here right now, is to force you to talk about something that
0: interests me because I want to hear your ideas. I, we are happy to do it. James, so we never did find out what you're up to, James. What are you up to, James? My book is come,
2: Dare to Know, which is an adult science fiction novel. It is coming out September 14th. I'm very excited wow. about it. We'll see what happens as I as I move from the cozy, wonderful, perhaps slightly suffocating, perhaps insular, perhaps a terrifyingly backstabbing world of children's literature into the world of adult literature. Let's see what happens.
0: Yeah, I don't think anyone in adult literature has ever stabbed each other in the back. I think that, generally speaking, I don't think that Gore Vidal ever wound up punching Norman Mailer in the face or anything like that? Wait, was that what happened? No, it was, it
2: was Norman Mailer who punched Gore Vidal, and then Gore Vidal laid on the ground and said, words fail Norman Mailer yet again.
1: <laughs> uh, James, can you walk me through this timeline? Because I feel like as a listener of the podcast, you only announced Dare to Know like two weeks ago, and it's coming out in September. Why yeah. did you sit on the, uh, the, the sale and, and announcement so long?
2: Because uh, I didn't really believe it was real. Um, <laughs> I, I'm used to disappointment. I, I'm used to uh, being kicked in the teeth. It got bought like about a year ago, and then uh, we sold well the, a film option for it. I'm very happy about all these things, but we will see what happens. Like I, I, I don't truly believe that any good thing can happen in the world to me, and, and so if a good thing happens, I, I, if, if I feel, if I announce it, then the gods will come and have their vengeance on me. So I, I kind of like kept it
0: kept it to myself for a long time. So Jonathan, why have you brought us here together today?
1: All right. So let me dive in with kind of a, a what feels like a personal theory. Maybe other people have said this, and that's totally fine. In fact, I know some other people have said things that got me there. Uh, like a lot of the ideas I've had in the last several years, it came while you guys were bickering on the podcast. Uh, uh-huh. So, you know, when you said, I've been on this podcast four times, I feel like I've been on this podcast like 50 times because I am... I, I speak audibly aloud while I listen to you guys. Uh, I, I It's really hard for me to not think I'm in the room. Um, one of the things that I remember in a recent podcast, James, you talked about after you wrote Order of Oddfish, I think it was the big Order of Oddfish episode um, where you guys really talked about that book, which was really fun. You talked about basically, you know, you finished that book, which was all about kind of pleasing you and you really kind of followed your bliss and you wrote this really idiosyncratic thing and it sold. And then for a second book you like, decided you were going to play by the rules yeah. and it really didn't work for you. And it was only when you kind of threw away some of those things that you found something again, that was kind of alive and and was working again. Mm-hmm. And I think I even hopped on the blog and made a comment because I think it really, really reinforced that idea. I believe a lot that I feel like people say a lot, but they don't actually truly, truly live it out. Um, which is that a lot of the tools that get discussed on this podcast, that really get discussed in Matt's book, they're extremely valuable as revision tools, but they can be deeply counterproductive in the initial stages of creation. And I think those are two entirely different states of mind And again, I I hear people pay lip service to this. People say, these are revision tools, but then they sort of still present them or people who hear them internalize them as things that should be top of mind when they're staring at a blank page. And my personal experience, and it sounds like James, your personal experience, and maybe Matt, even yours, is when you have that blank page, a lot of these sort of architectural, more editorial ideas, they can hurt as much as they can help. And one of the big sort of new ideas I have, again, based on all my ideas are,
0: <laughs> repackaged old ideas but um I don't know if either of you are familiar with Dorothy L Sayers I have never read anything by her but I'm I'm familiar I know of her but I've never read anything
1: So my my understanding of Sayers is she was like if the inklings hadn't been an old boys club then Sayers would have been a member of them um mm-hmm. she was a very strong for, forceful personality she wrote the the Lord Peter Wimsey novels uh, detective novels I'm not a big mysteries reader and I think it was Lewis who made a Kind of backhanded comment, like, I, I like Dorothy L. Sayers, like, I like a strong wind. Um, which is <laughs> to say, I think she was a very bracing person, big personality. She also wrote a whole bunch of other stuff, a lot of nonfiction, and a lot of it was related to her faith and, and her identity as an artist. I don't know how the stuff holds up now. When I read it much, much younger, I, the ideas felt really compelling and new. And, and she has one book, basically, she breaks down this idea, almost a Trinitarian idea of the act of creation, And it's just a very simple triangle. And I've seen versions of it elsewhere where basically you have three, you have a triangle and at each point are one of three things. You have the artist, you have the artifact or the the literal object being made, and you have the audience. And Mm. she spends a lot of time talking about what happens in a work of art when one or another of those three poles, I don't know if you can have three poles, but assume we can. If the piece is basically centered a little too closely to one of those corners. And she has this big taxonomy she breaks through where like, this is where, you know, if it's in this far corner, it becomes propaganda. If it's in this, it becomes uh, religious artifacts, but not real art. If it's this, it becomes uh, whatever. She has all these ideas, but I've always loved that breakdown of looking at a work of art and going, every work of art is basically potentially oriented toward either the object itself the desires, creativity, need for expression of the artists themselves, or the appetites and desires and interests and experience of the audience. Right. And I think the implication is, oh, you want to think perfectly in the middle, and then it's very Aristotelian. And, and I think that's about as far as the idea has carried me for a long time. Uh, but while listening to a podcast of yours, again, I think it was the odd fish and thinking about James, that you talking about that experience, it occurred to me that... Rather than looking at all three of those poles existing at once, which is an easy thing to do with a finished work of art. But again, I spend a lot of time going, well, how much does the story craft analysis actually play into the acts of creation and the stages of creation? Matt, I think you get this because you have written a whole book where you basically talked about how the basic structure of a hero solving a problem significantly mirrors the structure of creating something that every writer goes through.
0: Yeah, that I I find that I go through my own 14 point process over the course of crafting my 14 point book, over the course of crafting my 14 point screenplay that I, you know, have to throw away my own map halfway through and I have to go through my own spiritual crisis and I have to go through the whole process that my hero has to go through. Exactly.
1: And so you're, what what that's doing is reflecting that it's actually a, a series of, it's, it's temporal, it's a series of stages. And so let's take that Dorothy L. Sayers triangle with the artist, artifact, and audience. And instead of just uh, looking at a finished product and then and then creating a heat map or whatever, you put the dot where the thing mostly is, it's like a word cloud. Instead of that, think of those three aspects, competing priorities as Phases, And, you know, I often talk about when I'm writing that I I give almost no thought to my audience. I'm very clear about that. People ask me all the time. And I'm like, my main job is getting out of getting the story down and then getting out of my own way and figuring out what the story and the characters want. But that's actually not accurate to a lot of the process. In fact, in the last stages of revising, I cut a ton of stuff and I've noticed that stuff I fought tooth and nail for in the early stages. They were important in the book in the early stages. I'll get near kind of the final cuts. And it's not because my editor is strong arming me. They'll make one little comment, but if they phrase it the right way, I'll pull out a paragraph that I labored over and bled over and loved to my core. It'll go in a second. And the thing that they will tell me that makes me cut it is completely oriented around the idea of the reader experience. Is the reader going to miss it if this is gone or you love this, Jonathan, but is this going to slow down the experience that the reader's having? Does it distract them from what's really going on right now in the story? And what's weird is that advice and those suggestions are really poisonous at different points of the process. And I started to realize that I had a a flow as I wrote. And James, my suspicion is that at least part of this will will resonate with your experience. But I, I realized, and I don't know if it's universal, but I suspect it applies to more writers than just me. I basically wondered if I could approach writing a novel or frame it as three distinct phases, and each one prioritizes one of those three poles. And the first phase, or first draft, uh, if you want to limit it to a single draft, is all about the artist. It is about the joy of creation, the personal discovery, the need to say something, to share something, to show something of oneself. And in, in that initial creation, that is your true north. And you need to follow that. And then once, for me at least, once I've gotten that thing really down and I've gotten out all of myself onto the page, there's a really painful but significant process where like, everything is about getting out of the way of the book and the story. And suddenly all of the things that I love that were important to me, the inside jokes, the insights, the question that I'm always holding up is, yeah, but is that what the characters needed? And so you start making painful, hard, personal choices because you realize now the story is about and needs to be prioritizing the needs of the story itself, of the characters themselves, of the theme that's emerged independent of my will. And then there's the third phase, which is so you have the artist phase first. You have the artifact phase where it's the thing itself. And then you get that last phase, which is audience. And those are the moments when suddenly I'm super receptive to, you know, is this really is this going to alienate a young reader because it's a little too dark. Earlier on, those are poisonous questions. They they limit the story. They hurt me creatively. But now that I've gotten those other two things locked, right, I know I got my own expression in because that was a whole point of my first draft. I know I've honored the characters and given them, created the story they need because that was the point of my second draft. This third draft is now finally for the audience. And two things I would say. First is, I think if you don't do all three passes, the piece itself gets lopsided and you can kind of identify in the final product that one of those three passes didn't happen. And then the other thing is, I even wonder, and I couldn't say it with certainty, that if you change the order that those three passes happen in, you can see it in the final product and, and not in a positive way. And the big thought I had, and again, this happened in your podcast, was I heard Matt, you and James kind of arguing over a reaction about a certain story. And, and the, my big takeaway that's a, that's a framework and idea I have. But the real thing that I think might be valuable is in the world of getting, receiving feedback and giving feedback, I think we often run into a situation where the writer is in one of those three phases and the reader giving the feedback is in a different of those three phases. And both people could be wrong about what the actual phase they should be in right now. Sometimes the writer clings to phase one way past when they should. And sometimes the person giving critiques are focusing on phase two when we're still in phase one or focusing on phase two when we need to be in phase three, right? Which is to say focusing on the artifact, the audience or the author at the wrong point in the story's own sort of gestation. And I wonder if we could create an open understanding that a story goes through these phases. I wonder if that would clarify an enormous amount of sort of confusion between note givers and writers, because I think often note givers are giving good notes at the wrong time, and sometimes the writer is dismissing good notes because they don't understand what phase the story is now moved into. So that
2: is a big idea.
0: This is, I think this a, is a
2: great point. Great point. This um, is a I,
0: great point. I love this point,
2: uh, and I think one of the great things about this point is that it acknowledges the iterative. Nature of creation. You do have to go through these phases, and you have, you have to write it, and you have to write it again, and you have to write it again uh, um, yes. it, it, with with different things in mind. And I and I think you're right, uh, Jonathan, that it, it could not be in any other order than this. The, and I, I think mean, this is great because it it, it this is not like at some of the advice that you you hear. It's like it's not about it's not targeted at a person who's analyzing a completed work of art. We see that Bobby Town did this with Chinatown because this is how a well-constructed thingy works. No, we're giving advice to people who are trying to write stories. And so you have to give advice that's going to make sense to the human in that moment and not in terms of just like some kind of finished artifact that we contemplate later. So I, I think this is great advice. I think it's something we should definitely keep in mind. And I like the way that you put
0: it. I love this. I think that this may be my favorite thing that's ever come out of this podcast. I think that this is so useful. And it's, I mean, it's sort of a repost to my book because, you know, my book is all about how, like, don't make it all about yourself. Don't make it all about trying to serve some ideal or story, make it about the audience. That is what is the problem with stories. And I still think this is true to a certain extent that what is problem with stories is that they are not written with an audience in mind that they are not sent out into the world with an audience in mind. But I think that you are sort of saying like, Hey, wait, 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 Matt. Yes. When you send it out in the world, you need to have the audience in mind, but that shouldn't be your first draft. Your first draft should not have an audience in mind at all. Your first draft should only have, should just have yourself in mind. Should just be like, I'm going to write what I want to write the way I want to write it based on my own volatile psychology. And then you're like, okay, but how can I write the platonic ideal draft? And then how can I write for the audience draft? So, I mean, we've always talked about on this podcast to what degree my book is useful for a first draft versus useful for another draft. I certainly get letters all the time from people saying, most people who say my book is useful say it was useful for rewriting. I think that's how people find my book. I think people recommend my book to each other going like, oh, this is a book that is good for if you are in trouble, if you have been working on the same draft for years. I do occasionally get people who are saying, I wrote my first draft based on your book and it turned out great. You know, that does happen. I've never fully gone on with James's general thesis at times that my book is poison for (laughs) beginning writers. (laughs) I don't think that's true, but I think that you, what you've said, Jonathan, is the best way of saying the best antidote to my book that we have had on this podcast, the best go of going, wait, 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 Matt, you're right. You should write for an audience, but you should write for an audience on your third draft, which I think is a very persuasive thing for you to say the way you just put it.
1: Well, and it's not just, you know, uh, the mistakes you make. Again, Matt, you and I, from the moment we met, we really geeked out over structure. And and I see this. So I, I teach occasionally in, in MFA programs. And one of the things this framework made me realize, because I'm sometimes frustrated that I feel like I'm not a better teacher than I am I, I I feel very confidently. I give really good feedback. I put a ton of energy into it i'm I'm a nice guy with it. It's not like there's a power play I, I really try to I'm not trying to make people feel bad, but I find sometimes that I'm dealing with a young writer that even though i'm I'm giving everything I have to help them in the book they're writing, I can just i can I can see the 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 balloon deflating inside them as I talk. <laughs> And I think this helped me realize because Matt, you're all about you're you're and and really what we're correcting what each of us didn't get in our education. So you're all about that last phase with audience because you were educated in a way where you got you didn't get enough of that in your yes. education. Oh, certainly so like,
0: at Columbia University film school, they were all about you've got to have the author's pure expression. You've got to have your big bright blue burning flame coming from your heart onto the page. And uh, you like that mixed metaphor. And you've got to you've got to be burning through the page with your burning heart. And, you know, and then I was sort of sitting there rolling my eyes. And I was like going, oh, come on. Can't we think of the audience? Can't we just stop trying to serve our own egos? Can't we just stop being so self-serving? Can't we go ahead and write something that someone is actually going to enjoy reading instead of something that's absolutely self-indulgent, crapola? And And that was where my book came from, (laughs) was that, that reaction. So
1: I think, and for me, like conversely, like I am all about phase two. Every piece of story craft and talk I have when I'm dealing with any manuscript is like, I need you to see the story that you've got in front of you clearly so you can get out of its way. And it's all about the object. It's about the characters and the themes that are emerging. And it's about both ignoring the audience completely and also kind of teaching the writer to get out of their way. And again, I've seen it. I'm like, I I know these are good notes and I know what I'm saying is true. But I think what I'm realizing now is sometimes I can see it
2: in the person. They're not being defensive, but I can tell that I'm I'm not getting them. I'm not helping them move forward.
0: Yeah. Have you ever
2: tried to give like professional style notes to your child? (laughs) <laughs> you know, like, it doesn't work. Uh, um, like, I told, I tell Lucy, she's got third act problems in that story that she wrote, and she looks at me like I'm crazy. Yeah. So really, the three of us, to me, represent the three phases, because James, over and over again, you're
1: about the initial point of creation. But honestly, and I and I say this as like, you know, I really loved Order of Oddfish. You always talk about, like, David Lynch as being one of these people that you just love. David Lynch, to me, is someone who misses that third phase so completely that no matter how excellent what i'm seeing is i i realize I, I don't enjoy watching his movies because he doesn't care about me and i don't like spending time with someone who has no interest yeah. in communicating to me i yeah. think you intuitively as a writer you do that phase that lynch doesn't i love that he does every, you know he he ticks all the boxes for you but i think you as a writer intuitively do get to that last place and i think that step is key i think if you're missing those steps or those steps again are out of order And that's where this, that actually leads me to genre. But I feel like it's a way to say everybody's right, but Uh we all have to be right at at a specific time in the process.
2: Well, I think like what you just said about Lynch is very telling because I I think we can go to that third stage and say, well, okay, what about the audience? And I think there's a further tweak to that, which is which audience? Because David Lynch is going to work for me and, you know, not surprisingly, a lot of other people but it's not going to work for other people. And I think that at some point, David Lynch made a decision. I'm going to be David Lynch and I'm not going to be Steven Spielberg. He didn't make a decision. He had no choice. But you know what I mean? Like some people, like they, they, just like in his Dark Materials, you figure out who your demon is and it settles when you're 14 and you can't be anybody other than that. You know what I mean? And so you have to realize who you are. Are you a Spielberg or are you a Lynch? Are, no, are so- I mean, and I think, and the thing is, there are a lot of people who love David Lynch. I don't think he's defective. He's simply for an audience that's not you.
1: Yeah, I I guess I'm, and maybe I'm, I'm coming out a little more. I mean, and I think Spielberg is a perfect counterpoint to that because I think, you know, the problem with Spielberg is almost the literal opposite, which is other than the fact that divorce happens to a lot of his characters, there's very little of Steven Spielberg in his work. He, he. He and again, maybe it's a question of or like what, what order you put the, the three stages in or leaving a stage out entirely. I don't know. We can't, you know, I can speculate, but I, I will
0: never know how these
1: stories really truly came
0: to be. In Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, uh, the author tells a story about how when Steven Spielberg, you know, first had his first success, he ran out and bought himself a bright orange Trans Am. And then showed everybody like, oh, look, I'm cool now. I made some money. I just bought a part year insurance And everybody laughed at him and said, that's the most ridiculous looking car in the world. So then he instantly went and sold it and felt really ashamed. And I remember reading that and thinking like, I want to see that moment in a Steven Spielberg movie. I want to see that true expression of himself. That embarrassment on this sort of guy who was desperate to fit in, who they also described in that book, how everybody had their phone in their office that had everybody on speed dial. And he was the only one who didn't have any other directors on speed dial. He just had producers on speed dial. And that that was who he was. And I've just never seen Steven Spielberg. you right. What are you talking one... about? You
2: saw it. You saw it. You saw it. it was Catch Me If You Can.
0: <laughs> you, you I'm sing. not I'm you're not saying... joking. You're saying Catch Me If You Can had some of that had some of Spielberg's personality in it.
2: Yeah, I'm saying that somebody if you say, "Oh, here's somebody who tried to fake a persona and, and then got caught at it and, and then people laughed at him and he changed,
0: that is Catch Me If You Can." That was one of my favorite Spielberg movies, so I think you may be onto something. Um so I know I think this is I, first of all I love Catch Me If
1: You Can. Um, I mean, and I think David Lynch and Steven Sperger are also valuable because they're both impeccable on craft, like just absolutely tippy top of the of the pile. But you see
0: how you kind of weight something, and and it really changes who someone is. Uh, Hi, this is Matt in the editing room. Let me jump in here. So at this point in the discussion we suddenly launched into a major tangent that had little to do with Sayers' Triangle where we talked about genre and Alien for an hour and it was great and it deserves to be its own episode so that's going to be episode 30. Now, eventually, that discussion worked its way around to Sweeney Todd, and we discussed Sweeney Todd and genre. You'll hear that in the next episode. But then that worked its way around to Into the Woods. And suddenly, we found ourselves back where we started, talking about the Sayers Triangle, talking about the three traps. So we're going to pick up with our discussion of Into the Woods, and we're going to go on with the rest of our discussion, which was back around to this topic and will be the rest of this episode. Into the Woods is this example of like going, oh, I can give you exactly what you want. I know how to give you exactly what you want that's going to be the end of act one. You're going to be very happy, but that's not what I want. And what I want is to talk about the AIDS crisis. And I want to talk about how everything is going to shit in America. And I want to punish these characters. And I am going to give you a completely miserable second act. And that's what I want. And that's what you're going to be stuck with. And you're going to wish that you left it at the intermission, but you you know, you know, once again, you're
2: presuming to jump into the psychology of the writer and that is not what he's saying. He's saying, I want to make people miserable because I'm Matt Bird's projection of, you know, what Sondheim is. That's not what he was thinking. Like he, was, he was he was doing one thing in the first act, he was doing a different thing in the second act, but he wasn't trying to make anybody miserable. And there's people who love Into the Woods all the way through.
0: No, I, do. I no, that's exactly what I'm saying, is that and that's why it's great. I mean, that's why it's it's a great musical. I think it would be utter saccharine crap if it ended at the intermission. And he is saying, this brings us back around to Sayers. This, he is saying, I'm going to give you this, you know, sort of unites everything we've been talking about. He's saying that I'm going to give you a perfect object. I'm going to give you a perfect platonic ideal for the first act, but I need to give you something of myself. And I am now going to give you what I want. I'm going to give you something of myself. I'm going to give you what I'm worrying about, how I'm feeling right now in 1986. I'm not feeling like there's a happy ending. I'm not feeling like we're all going to survive this, like we're all going to get away with this. I am going to give you a much darker, deeper story than the story that you want, than the story that I promise you in the first half. I'm going to break all the promises I made in the first half and that's why it's great that's why people love it i mean i when disney made it into a movie which was just a horrible idea for several reasons they should have just made disney's first half of into the woods disney the walt disney company presents the first half of into the woods which would have been a great movie i think disney could have made the hell out of the first act of into the woods but they tried to cram it all in without having any sort of tone variation in the middle of that terrible movie. They were like, hmm, how do we smooth this out so it all has the same tone? And It's like, you don't. My God, you can't do this movie without an intermission. You can't do this story without one hell of an intermission in which the tone completely changes. And I think that This goes back to Sayers. This goes back to this idea of, do you turn something into a platonic ideal of itself? Or do you have your part of it? And at what point do you deliver? At what point do you say, this isn't about you, this is about me, that this is not about what you want. This is about what I, as the artist, want to say.
2: Well, I I guess what you're saying is that sometimes you just can't smooth out the difference between all those things. Sometimes in the work of art, you have to jolt from one to the other, and it's not about I'm going to kind of like take my tongue and lovingly lick it until it satisfies all three points. Sometimes it's like the first part's going to be all the way this way, and the second part's going to be all the way that way, and that can also be a valid way of going about art.
1: First of all, I think I think Into the Woods works wonderfully because the the pivot he makes between the acts, the intermission, he's punishing us and, and our complacency for wanting these flat characters and happy endings because we know the world isn't like that and we feel respected. I think it's all about the audience in the second act. I think he's saying, you know better and I know better. We can't know sort of forensically when things occurred. So the real question, we just, we look at that final product and we go, is the author present? And it's a resounding yes. the other question is, is the object, is the object central to the shape of its own thing, right? Does it give the characters what the characters needed? Does the story have its own sort of structural integrity? And it's a surprising structure, but I think that was probably a really hard birth with that story, actually. And I bet he really wrestled and did hard things because he realized the story wanted to go in this challenging direction. I don't think that was just his opinion stuff. And then the last one is, in terms of the audience one, it's it's a question of clarity, right? It's a question of... Is he delivering the fairy tale, the fun fairy tale thrills that we are hoping for? And he hundred percent does. But that that challenging stuff isn't anti audience. In fact, it's a gift to the audience. It's just a question of, and this is where like David Lynch is a great example. Like, I get a strong sense in a number of the David Lynch movies, or, or other lots of other things as well, that at some point the storyteller does not care if I get left behind because they literally don't care. About me, it's it's like being in a conversation with someone where you could leave the room, and then come back ten minutes later and they're still monologuing, right? You don't you don't need to be there. I hate that as an audience member, and you know I would hate I hate that if I meet a person that's that so caught up in their own thing that you are you you're utterly uh, inconsequential to the this quote unquote conversation. So I think the clarity of the of the messaging and ideas that he's communicating, the way he communicates them the emotional impact of them that we see in that that, that final act of uh, Into the Woods. That is about audience still. That is about audience being taken seriously. That is about the audience being really shown an idea fully, right? He did, I don't think Sondheim would have thought he had done his job if people walked out of that play going, huh, I wonder what he was doing with that, what he was trying to say, right? So right. It's, it's, it's focusing on the audience isn't just about thrills and chills or something like that. It's not about just feeding people sugar or, or, you know, or, you know, opiate of the masses type stuff. It's, it's about communication. Um, So the focus on the audience is the focus on really, really taking seriously the audience experience are the, and so this is again, where I have a little bit of trouble with like, certain types of artists and storytellers who are basically like, well, if these people can't keep up, screw them. That's a great attitude probably for certain stages, but before you release it into the world, that's a really
2: contemptuous and and to me quite ugly point of view. Uh, Before you say ugly, I just say they're choosing their audience. Some people are really going to go for it and they really want that kind of thing. And so as somebody who is a fan of Lynch, like I don't want somebody who's not going to be, like if I'm going in for a Lynch movie, that is what I want. And so like choosing your audience is different than having contempt for the audience. You're just choosing somebody.
1: I see your point. And I see, and I think David Lynch's movies are uneven. Sometimes even with, you know, I think Mulholland Falls, no, Mulholland Mulholland Drive. Drive. I'm sorry. Mulholland Falls is (laughs) different. (laughs) Mulholland Uh, Falls was a very different movie. Uh, Mulholland Drive. I think that movie worked and it it really, really like struck a big chord. It was, it was shockingly hugely successful, you know, given what it is. So I, I, this isn't about David Lynch ignoring who David Lynch is, but sometimes he's he's
2: just truly uninterested. But I don't think he he was not choosing his audience any less in Mulholland Drive. But I don't think it does any good to psychologize an artist and say he was uninterested. You could talk yeah. about the work of art, but you really can't talk about his state of mind. No,
1: but I can talk. I can tell when someone doesn't care.
2: No, you can't. I'm you're the psychologizing. Teams. Then you're saying I know his mind.
1: You don't. You're, you're right. I, I can't speculate his mind, but I get the right to look at the final product and go, I don't think this thing is complete because I think one of these major pieces of the ways we focus and create art, and I do fundamentally believe art is about communication. It can be surprising. It can be unsettling. It can be all these different things, but it has to be actually about kind of a, a, a clear communication. I think I get the right as the artist or as an audience member to say, I and again, I'm not Coming into this completely ignorant, I'm I'm pretty fluent in cinema and story. I get the right to say I I think this thing is not actually interested in me. It's not it's not giving me enough to bring me along. That's allowed. That's but not even speculating. I I mean, about how
2: can a thing be interested? A things can't be interested. Art you can be interested. The artist can be interested, but the thing is just a thing.
0: Well, I think you and I might see these things differently. But then there are sometimes, like with In the Woods, where it's like, okay, this is a case where. The artist has chosen, has shown me that he can give me what I want and is giving me something that tastes so good and is so appealing, but is also strangely empty. And then he can then rip it away from me. There's a definite sense of of having a happy ending ripped away from you. I mean, is that what the job of an artist is? Is the job of an artist to go like... Yes, give people what they want, and then give people what they need.
1: I mean, again, this is the danger area that James mentions, where I'm, James mentions where I'm speculating on the on the mind of the storyteller. But I think the reason Into the Woods works is because it doesn't have this contempt, right? This let me give you what you need. I think he's I think he's grieving with us. Yeah. I think that story has a, a tremendous sort of it, it. I think it goes to those dark places with a pretty heavy heart, and I feel a sense of Again, speculating, but I feel a sense of kind of communion with Sondheim, which is very different than like, hey, you idiots, let me show you what the world's really like.
0: Let's go ahead and let's talk about Fabled Stables. I feel like how much Jonathan, how much of Jonathan's volatile weirdness is in Fabled Stables. So for context, for people listening,
1: uh, about three hours ago when this conversation began, uh, Matt mentioned (laughs) I have this new series
0: called The Fabled Stables. Uh, It's a big
1: pivot for me. It's this series for younger readers. Uh, It's about a little boy named Augie who works at this place called The Fabled Stables, which is full of all sorts of weird, one-of-a-kind creatures. And every once in a while, a new stall appears. He has to go out into the world, rescue this, find this new strange creature, figure out how to help it and bring it back to the stables. It's a series for much younger readers. You can read them in 15 minutes aloud. But they're about 100 pages long, beautiful, full-color illustrations done by the artist Olga Demidova. They're meant for a a kind of an all-family read-aloud. I wrote them because I needed more read-alouds like that in my life. I think traditionally, (laughs) most of my books, people know me as being pretty heavy and serious. I'm actually a pretty silly person in real life. When I go to events, when I interact with librarians, they're often quite surprised that I'm not more kind of professorial because some of my books, are, as middle grade goes, are pretty dense and heavy I often lean towards some pretty heavy themes. People don't believe me when I say all of my novels originate from like little puns that I think are really interesting. <laughs> Even like my serious novels, like they start with a pun and I just spin out the whole book from that. And The Fabled Stables are are kind of these silly light books where, you know, all the creatures, there's not like traditional like griffins and unicorns. All the creatures, you know, are based on a, a little bit of wordplay. In the second installment, there's these creatures called Tattletales and they're these weird fluffy snake-like creatures that attach to the back of you and tattle on you every time you're doing stuff um, and drive people crazy. You know, there's a little tiny creature called a hippopotamus, which looks like a hippopotamus, but it's tiny, you know, just little funny kind of bits of wordplay and whimsy. The books feel very candy colored, feel very kid-centric, and I certainly wrote them for a super young audience. Um, These were, but, I mean,
0: you were writing, you were doing audience-focused writing to a certain extent. Well, no, that's what I, that's, so that's, again, I believe in all three stages. I, I wrote those books
1: because I really wanted them. I wanted them as a writer. Um, I just finished writing Sweep, which was an enormously sort of emotionally heavy book. It took years and years of research and really ugly research about child labor and anti-Semitism and all of these things. It's a really dark, dark, dark process writing that book, not the least of which was working through my own personal trauma about endangered children that I was kind of living through as I was writing it for the last couple of years. I wanted something fun and light because I personally needed it. I was greedy for some play. And there is as much, again, my personality is is as clearly reflected in The Fabled Stables as in any of my other books. It gives a much more clear image, I actually think, of who I am just personally. Like, if you see me just hang out with my family or just being a normal person in the world, I'm, I'm a much sillier and lighter person than, again, that uh, those other books sort of indicate. So even though the books feel very, like, candy-colored and, and calibrated toward kids, that's actually a huge part of who I am that doesn't come through in my other novels. And and I wouldn't have written them if they didn't have that personal reflection of who I was. I mean, so I, do I, you
0: feel like you went through those three drafts with these Fabled Stable books? Do you feel like you did a personal just coming from me draft and then a focusing on the object draft and then a focusing on the audience draft?
1: Oh, hugely. So I started the books like way, way, way too clever. I had again, I love the puns, but I like got really deep in them. I'm still desperate to use, like I had this whole concept where he steals this magical objects called Zeno's pair of socks. And when you put them on, (laughs) you take one step, you move half the distance and like, he's running from bad guys, but he can't quite get to the doorway where the safety because he's got the socks. And my editors are like, um, and I'm like, no, trust me, it'll be great. And so I 100% write for like my, you know, very like fairly adult sensibility for these very young children's books. And then I find I, I get the story and then I completely change things based on what the story itself needs, what the character is going through, even in these these shorter books. And then that last stage, 100 percent is there is when I work through with my editor. And if my editor tells me to cut something because she doesn't like it, that doesn't work. If she tells me to cut it because it's too violent or too scary, that doesn't work. But if she, she really sinks into the language of the reader experience, she starts using things like I think. This joke here obscures this tense moment that the reader's in the middle of. It goes out instantly. Huh. Um, and so even in, those, in the microcosm of those little books, they're, you know, 3,000 words long. I still, I always end on that last pass of, and it's, again, it's not about pleasing the audience. It's about making sure the audience gets to, is carried along the whole way. It's about clearing the brush and getting past my own cleverness or intentions to make sure that they actually get to ride on the ride. So, so I think sometimes when you talk about the the Dorothy Sayers kind of three polls, audience isn't, it's not about appeasing people. It's not about feeding them, you know, junk food instead of vegetables or any of that. It can be, but that's not really what I mean by that. I think it's the focus on audience is just completely sinking into the reality of this is going to go out in the world and I'm going to have no control over how it's received. And so I have to change this thing and I have to, reinvestigate my own interests and the shape of this thing to make sure that it actually is
2: received
1: the way kind of received fully by every single person who reads it. The scary parts need to be scary, the funny parts need to be funny. There's ambiguous, which is good, but there's also vague, right? <laughs> right. And you got to cut out the vague. You got to you got to make sure that the thing that you you want it to be is actually something that someone who picks it up will actually receive. And and so very it was it was while revising the third book which is coming out in in the fall season Okay. Um, that I went through that phase. And these ideas came out of that process, even though those are very different books and, and much less sort of fancy um, <laughs> than
0: some of my other books. I mean,
1: they've been very well-reviewed still. I've gotten a bunch of Star reviews and, and things
0: like that. But uh, oh, wonderful. they're certainly lighter fare. So. so when I look at something like Into the Woods, I go like, okay, the first part is, here's what the audience wants. And the second part is, here's what I want. And you're saying that that is not, that that may be true of that work, but that is not a generally healthy way to work and that I don't think it's way true to work, of that work either. It's not true of that work either. And the healthier way to work or the way that you think everyone works, maybe even that where that work worked is that the first act isn't so much about Here's what I want, which is different from what the audience wants. But the first act is just, you know, the first draft, your first draft of Fables Tables was just about let me have as much fun as I can have, even though it may be Zeno's Parasox that is something that, that I'll have to eventually admit that, you know, isn't necessarily ideal material for little kids. And But I'm going to do it for me. I'm going to put it in there. I'm going to have fun so you're saying that the the author draft is sort of the having fun draft or the doing boy I wish that everybody could get this and I'm going to put it in assuming that everybody can get it and then maybe it made later that there are some things in here the audience is going to get
1: yeah i mean for me i i don't i can't get through a first draft if i'm not doing that james i think your your experience would would indicate the same and i think sometimes writers when they Do fully skip that draft we see it instantly it's the thing is so dead and calculating and that's the pejorative genre where right it's like you know i mean in the same way when i teach my story structure classes and it's i think it's a big laugh point but mostly my students are ready to cry i've drilled all of these you know young graduate students are trying to learn novels for three months we have walked through like in excruciating detail story structure and they finally like really really grok this stuff and can kind of replicate it and identify it in movies and the books you're reading and my big my big announcement is like congratulations you're all ready to write a michael bay movie um <laughs>
2: you mean they're is... ready to become millionaires <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe. that's one way to think of it uh, but like point being like like it's actually stru- structure is so important to me but it's not actually the thing that makes a story come to life for me at least you need to start from that personal place and and maybe you can reverse the order maybe you can be really sort of calculating and, and really great with the audience great with the, the story and the structure and the the object itself and at the very end you you season in a little your personal stuff you know one character gets a speech that resonates with you that but doesn't i
0: don't true that well, now, doesn't sound true <laughs> now what i want to do is i want to go back to all of the free story ideas i've given away since the beginning of this podcast and go like okay you know these were all ideas i'd abandoned for one reason or another Which of the three did these begin with? Did For each of these, did it begin with me having fun or saying what I want to say? Which of these began with me going like, okay, what does the audience want to hear? Something like the Subway movie that was very much based on
2: Okay. Oh, that but was based on was the fact that like, oh, I could get an easy. This it's easy to shoot this. That yeah, was your that, whole that's sort idea. Of the
0: fourth, that's sort of the fourth thing of what would be easy to shoot. What would oh be? Oh my god, what that would was be. A nightmare. Why? Thank you. I, horror movies are supposed to be nightmares. That's such a nice compliment. Yeah. yeah. Um, what? Yeah. What would be easiest to do? Would be. Would be the fourth. The the trap that would be that that would be the least work for me, the author. But so then yeah, I want to go back through all those things going. It's like, oh, that one was too audience-focused. Oh, that one was too me-focused. That one was too focused on the object itself. Which of these didn't have these? And which of these could I then go back and rescue because I have to restore the leg of the triangle that's missing?
1: Yeah, I I mean, if if I'm looking at my drawer, the truly dead stuff, it was all audience and object itself. I've got all sorts of ideas. And those are the kind of ideas I can give away because fundamentally I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea. Someone should make that, but... I don't have that personal thing. The things that that I have written that were deeply personal that haven't kind of found their way into the world, I haven't quite let go of those yet. I'm just still waiting with them. And honestly, it's in part often because I haven't finished the personal work that the story represents, right? Sweep took 11 or 12 years to write, and I never quite let it go because I knew I was going into some territory, deeply personal territory, but I actually, I still needed to basically go through the therapy and figure out what I was actually doing with it. But for me, the stuff that, that, that I truly like have ideas and pitches that I've, you know, will truly never make it's, it's not because they weren't great ideas, but they're great ideas for someone else. And and I can't write a thing unless I'm deeply personally
0: invested. There just wasn't enough of you in there. It's a good idea, but it didn't have enough of you in it.
1: Yeah. And again, my suspicion is the ideas that you feel comfortable giving away on the podcast are similar, where you're like, I think this is a cool premise, but like, it's not keeping me up at night, like it doesn't. And maybe you find that door in and that surprises you. But I I think unless you find that deeply personal door. And again, I suspect James feels really similarly, because James, you seem really oriented toward that part of the process.
0: All right. Well, guys, I think this was a good discussion. I think we've covered a lot of stuff. Your whole idea Of these three traps, Jonathan, is one of my favorite ideas we've ever had on this podcast. It's a good one. I think things are great. I think things are going well. And I was really made much more clear to me by you talking about The Fabled Stables. So this is great. So we'll go ahead and wrap this up. We'll be back soon. Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks. We did it. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kaim. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.